reading this morning is from um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God, was not dest- for God had not destined for us wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you have been doing. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I know that I am very grateful for my mum and for spiritual mums like Moira and Steph, who have well, been key of me coming to know the Lord. So happy Mother's Day to all mums, spiritual or otherwise. Um, another just wee announcement from me. Um, I was supposed to have people over for lunch today, but they have COVID. So there's food for three people, I'm going to say, at my house, if you want to come. Other disclaimer, my wife is not home. She's in Guildford, so the house is quite boyish. So um, there's your disclaimers. The food will be good, but the smell might not be. Um <laughs> You know, as we look at this passage, you know, it might not really feel like a passage for Mother's Day, but God wants us to hear from it, so that's what we're going to do. Um, let, me, let me tell you a story. Um, it is the night before uh, my final exams at university. My mum and dad have gone on holiday, so me and both my brothers are in home or at our house alone entrusted to look after our house and we all head off the bed to get well not together we all go to our separate rooms and go to sleep and in the middle of the night you know I'm nervous so I, I wake up and quite unusually I, I get out of bed usually I just roll over and go back to sleep so I walk over to my to my window and think oh, I'll get some fresh air open the curtains uh, and as I look out my next door neighbor's car is on fire It is a complete fireball. It's totally ablaze. And my first thought is, this is a very strange dream. (laughs) And and as I stare, you know, for 20 seconds more, I'm sort of like pinching myself. I'm like, this is is actually happening. This is actually happening. So I I run to my mum and dad's bedroom because you run to your mum and dad when there's trouble. And then I'm like, they're not here. This is a disaster. So I, I pick up the landline and dial 999. And they say, hello, what services do you require? And in my sort of half awake, half asleep sort of state, I say, someone who can put out a fire, please. And, you know, the, the lady on the other end of the phone goes, do you mean the fire brigade? And I wanted to be like, this is not the time for SAS. <laughs> but, but, you know, thankfully the fire brigade did come. But as I look back on that story now, I, I couldn't help but think, what would I have done if I had known that that was going to happen? Like, what, what if I had known that someone was going to set fire to my neighbor's car, which could, you know, 
chain reaction set both houses on fire ablaze. You know, it, it definitely, without a question, it would have affected the way I acted. I wouldn't have come home. <laughs> no. Um, I, would, I would have warned my neighbours. You know, I would have wanted them to be prepared. And this morning's passage is all about being prepared for an event that we will all partake in. The day whenever the Lord God Almighty returns to this world to judge the living and the dead. So this, this passage is a warning. That is like the tone of this text. It is a warning, but it also contains instructions so that we as followers of Jesus can be prepared and encouraged. You know, this isn't a passage for Mother's Day. This is a passage for every single day. Because what we do with the warnings, the instructions, the encouragement will affect eternity. So I'm going to pray for us again that we'd have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to obey. Lord Jesus, we, we read in your word that you're coming again soon. You are the coming king. Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Lord, we need to hear from you, so speak through your word for your glory's sake for that day when you return. Amen. So a wee recap. Um, Paul has just, in chapter 4, been telling the Thessalonians what has happened to Christians who have died. That, that the moment that those men and women who know and love the Lord Jesus die, they are immediately in heaven with Jesus. And he said that at the end of chapter 4, verse 17, to encourage one another with these words, that one day Jesus is coming back and will take his people to be with himself. And that, that's sort of where Paul now turns his attention to that day when Jesus returns. So let's read from verses one to three. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So these verses tell us that the day of the Lord is certain, and it's also concealed. What, what do I mean whenever I say the day? It's, it's the phrase that you see if you look down in verse 2, the day of the Lord. That is what the day is. And this is the moment when Jesus Christ will return to this earth to judge his enemies, gather his people to himself, and usher in a new creation, paradise for all eternity. And if you've been with us at the bridge for the past Two years, you'll have heard this phrase many times because we've seen it in, in Malachi and in Revelation. And it's an idea that is throughout both Old and New Testaments. This is not just a Paul idea. This is a Bible idea. The Bible consistently says that all of creation is moving towards a destination, towards a date with its creator. And the Bible consistently says that this will be a day of judgment, of horror for those who have rejected God and a day of great joy for those who have accepted Jesus as the Lord of their life. But more on that later. You'll notice in verses 2 and 3 that Paul twice says the day will come. It will come. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. Jesus will return. Why, why is Paul so certain about this? Well, I think, firstly, because the whole Bible says that it's going to happen. But perhaps he's thinking, Jesus specifically speaks about this day in Matthew 24. If you're a note taker, Matthew 24, you can read it later. So when Paul says in verse 1, 
we do not need to write you. I think that's because Paul has taught these Thessalonians Christians that Jesus will return. You know, a faithful presentation of the gospel always involves in some capacity the fact that Jesus is returning to this world, no matter how you know, unpleasant or how unpalatable people may find that. So for Paul, since Jesus spoke about it, Paul's confident that it's going to happen. It's true and it's also good. I wonder if we have that same trust in Jesus' word. That is good and that is true. The, the second thing we also see is that this day is concealed. Now, what do I mean by the word concealed? It means that we cannot know the exact date and time of Jesus' return. You know, again, Paul is using language and imagery from Jesus used in Matthew 24. You know, he uses illustrations that Jesus used, which is a sign that all preachers can borrow illustrations. But Paul here uses two images to remind the Thessalonians, and therefore us, why the day is concealed, why we cannot know the day when Jesus returns. The first image is that of a thief, a thief found in verse 2. Now, this is really obvious, I know, but a thief does not make an appointment before popping over to do his business. He doesn't say, get your diary out, uh, I'll be over from two to three, so make sure you're not in the house because I'm coming to do, do some work. You know, and bear in mind, for Paul's readers, they didn't have banks, they didn't have ring doorbells and other means to protect their goods. So a thief coming was a disaster. A thief would come at night to avoid detection, and when you least expect it, they would strike. And the, this means the return of Jesus will be like a thief for many people. Unwelcome. Paul picks up, if you look down, a Roman phrase, peace and safety. The, the Romans believed that the Roman Empire would never, ever fall. That it was safe and secure, its, its armies, its borders. There would never be a time when the Roman Empire was not. And Paul says, destruction will come upon them when they least expect it. Paul then uses another image to note how sudden this destruction will be. Like a woman in labor, the labor pains a pregnant woman endures. As someone who has not had children, I've never seen this experience. I consulted a wise doctor this week who reliably informed me that once you're in labor, you're in labor. You know, there, there's no going back. There's no app to detect when it starts, how long it will be, or when it will end. There's no pressing pause, rewind, or fast forward. I don't know why you'd want to rewind. You, like, but you're locked in. There's no escaping, which means that all will stand before Jesus when he returns. The day is certain. It's unavoidable, but it's concealed, which means that we can't know when it's going to happen. But, you know, some people may rightly ask, you know, would it not be super helpful if God told us a date? Surely that would be helpful to know when Jesus was going to come back. Surely that might encourage more people to become Christians. Or perhaps, you know, if you're very clever, you'll be like, Lord, I work really well to a deadline. You know, if I knew that you were coming back, you know, tomorrow, two days, I'd get to work, I'd get busy. Well, maybe perhaps an illustration will help you here. You know, imagine with me, your parents have gone away for the weekend and they leave you in charge of the whole house. And they say, you know, we love you, look after the house, enjoy it, care for it, and we are going to return on Sunday at four o'clock. 
This is a big question. What do you do while they're away until that day at four o'clock? You may think, well, you know, realistically, I can get away with absolutely anything as long as the house is neat and tidy by four o'clock. So, you know, let's have fun. Let's go wild. Let's enjoy this house. Let's have a house party. And let's just make sure everything's back in order by four o'clock. That probably reveals something about us. We don't really love our parents or respect their, their words. We just want to know how much can we get away with until they return. But here's the question. What if they then came back early? You're completely rumbled. You know, the house is a state because they've come back at one o'clock and not four o'clock, and your true heart has been revealed. And just to be clear, we can get into dodgy territory here because, you know, religion is, you know, fear. Oh, I, I have to do good things in order that my parents will be happy. Well, the Lord will be happy when I return. But relationship with Jesus is, I love the Lord. Therefore, I want to look after the good gifts that he's given me. I think ultimately, the Lord does not give us a date because he knows our hearts. You know, he's not an insurance policy. He's not just, you know, flip last minute, let's book this in so that I'm safe. He wants genuine love and obedience and relationship. So these first three verses tell us to live because the king is coming. Be prepared for him and be preparing others for his return. Let's keep going. Let's read from verses four to seven. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You know, as we read these verses, we see that Paul highlights that all of humanity falls into two distinct categories. You know, th there are two ways to live until Jesus returns. Paul's really clear, isn't he? You're either in darkness or you're in light. There's, it's black or white. There's no gray area. There's no fence sitting. Either people belong to the darkness or to the light. You, you, you may not agree with me, but that, that is what the Bible says. It is striking. It is so decisive in its diagnosis of the human condition. You're either for God or you're against him. The Bible speaks of God as a light. Jesus himself famously said, I am the light of the world. So if you want nothing to do with God, if you reject him, the Bible teaches that you are in spiritual darkness. Can you imagine a world without light? You know, no light in your world. You would be hopelessly lost, grouping around in the dark. You, you, know, you wouldn't have a sense of, who you are, who other people are, you would get hurt and you'd hurt other people. You know, the Bible just makes sense of the world we live in, doesn't it? That's what we see, hurt people hurting other people and damaging and hurting this world that we live in. Paul says in verses six and seven that those who are in darkness are asleep and they're drunk. They're, they're, those are two striking images so for the Thessalonians, that would stir up an image of someone totally unprepared for a situation. You know, if you're drunk, your senses are dull. You're completely unaware of what's going on around you. If you're asleep, you have no idea what's going on. You're completely out of it. 
which means that people who don't know Jesus are completely unaware of the danger that they face. They are completely unaware of their spiritual condition. They have no idea, no comprehension of the fact that their maker is going to return and they're going to stand before him on that last day and give an account for the life that they lived and give an account for the fact that they rejected his son. They are not prepared. They are not ready. They are in darkness and it is a dire, dire situation. Is this the way we see lost people in our world and in our community harassed and helpless, living in darkness, unprepared, unaware, without hope. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for my indifference, for my apathy, for my lack of action. Lord, have mercy, because this is why we need passages like this. We need our vision reframed. We need to be shaken into action by seeing the world the way God sees it, light or darkness, you just, just as you feel crushed by that, you know, Paul then encourages the Thessalonians by reminding them, you are no longer in the dark. You're no longer in the dark. You know, at one point, these Thessalonians and you did not know Jesus. But Paul showed up, spoke God's word to them, and God shone his light into the darkness of their lives. Completely transformed, new creation, eternally changed forever. So if you know the Lord Jesus this morning, you're no longer in the dark. You're in the light. You know, see his words in verse four, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness. Hear God's word to you this morning. You are not in darkness. If this week has been horrible, if it has felt black as night in complete darkness, you are not in in the darkness. You are in the light. So for these Thessalonians, in the face of mounting pressure and persecution, Paul reminds them of who they are. Remember who you are. You are all children of the light and children of the day. You know, Paul uses this language, doesn't he, if you look down, of being children. You know, children are dependent upon their parents, but they also resemble their parents which means that Christians are light in this dark world. So, so Christians are light in this dark world, and also they're not alone. Look at verses 5 and 6. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. You know, Paul's just getting so excited about the gospel and saying, we're in the same team. We're in this together. We're not alone. And for the Thessalonians, you know, the man who brought the greatest news in the world to them says, you know, we are dependent on the same Lord. I've been saved by the same gospel. We are in this together. In this dark world, we're living for the coming King. And because of that, we have to be prepared for battle till the Lord returns. Why do I say battle? Well, we get it from verse 8. Read with me uh, what Paul says in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul encourages the Thessalonians to be prepared for battle. You know, this is an image he uses uh, in his letter to the Ephesian church as well. And just to think, the reason he uses this imagery is because of what he has written so far in his letter. If you're reading your Bible and you often, 
you might not understand why Paul has said something. Like, reread what you've seen before, because in, in chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 5, Paul has written about the attacks of the devil, the, the reality of spiritual warfare, the fact that there is a force of evil in this world. So be prepared for battle. Paul reminds these Thessalonians that they do not live in a neutral world. They live in a world that is at war with God and his ways. Paul experienced this firsthand being run out of town. If that, was, if that was true back then, it's definitely true now. The world, the media, the films we watch, the music we listen to is shaping us. It is waging war against us. I like what John Calvin says in this passage where he says, idleness is too much of a hazard to tolerate. It is too dangerous for us this morning to not be prepared for war, to not be prepared for Jesus' return, because the devil is always, always seeking your downfall. In case this just feels like another sort of burden on top of you, I, I was really encouraged whenever I read the, the English Standard Version, the way that they translate uh, verse 8. It's a bit closer to the original language. Paul says, having put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul says to these Thessalonians that whenever you trust in Jesus, you were, you were dressed, you were clothed, you're dressed ready for battle. You don't have to put on. It's already on you. You've already got everything you need for this battle. And Paul again uses these three virtues we've seen time and again in this letter. Faith, hope, and love. So, you know, putting on the armor of faith and love to believe the promises of God. Filled with the love of Jesus to love those who are in darkness, to win them for the light. The hope of salvation as a helmet, you know, Guarding your thoughts and your mind to protect you, to assure you that you are Jesus's, that you will be with him that day in heaven. I've been reading about a lady called, I'm not going to say her name very well because it's Indian, but uh, a lady called Pandita Ramabai. She was an Indian lady who was a social reformer. She, she was saved out of a Hindu background and she translated the Bible into her mother tongue, Marathu. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try again. Uh, but here's a quote from uh, Pandita. A life totally committed to God has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing to regret. You know, that is the confidence of the armor of God, isn't it? You know, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. She has this confidence that nothing in this world will compare with the glories that await because she knows what she has been saved from, an awful fate of wrath. Let, let's keep going. The last section here, the last three verses. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This last section is all about encouraging one another until Jesus returns. And, and Paul highlights the best way that Christians, that these Thessalonians can encourage one another is by reminding them of the gospel, what they've been saved from and saved to. He reminds them what they've been saved from 
God's wrath and what they've been saved to, to live with their Savior forever, which is really, really good news. But even often as Christians, whenever we hear this idea of God's wrath, we just don't like it, do we? Let's do a little deep dive on God's wrath here. God's wrath is God's righteous anger against humanity's sin. So whenever human beings turn away from God, reject him, and do their own things, it causes him anger. And yet, God's anger is not like human beings' anger. You know, it's, it's measured, it's appropriate. If you flick back in your Bibles to Genesis 15, we read that God patiently waits 400 years before judging the Amorite sin. Can you imagine being angry and waiting? Obviously, no one's going to live 400 years, but can you imagine just waiting a year before then, you know, dishing out your judgment. Like, it's just crazy to think how patient God is with sin. He's waiting, he's measured. So we need to remind ourselves this morning that this is not unfair. This is not an overreaction. This is just. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage one another. Because only when we remember what we deserve does it make us fully appreciate what they're going to receive because of Jesus, which is salvation. I've said it already, I think. We cannot fully appreciate God's love without understanding his wrath. Some people might say, can't we focus on God's love without his wrath? Surely that's a much more positive message to be speaking into our culture. Let's just focus on God's love and ignore the wrath bit. We're about to sing a song, uh, I'm nearly done, In Christ Alone. In this song, In Christ Alone, there's a line in it which says, till on that cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, the, the people who uh, wrote this song, the Gettys, received some uh, requests from people saying, could we change that lyric in your song to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. On that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, which you know, is perfectly true. God's love was magnified on the cross but we don't know about God's wrath. We don't actually know what God's love was doing on that cross. Why is it so loving for Jesus to die? You know, perhaps an illustration will help. Uh, where I'm from in Northern Ireland, every 12th of July, there are these bonfires that are lit across the country, and they're absolutely huge. But you know, say if I went to one of those bonfires with my, one of my brothers, and midway through the evening, uh, they look at me in the eye, then look at the towering inferno and say, Dave, this is how much I love you. And he runs straight into the bonfire and, and dies. Would I say, look how much he loved me? No, I'd be like, what was wrong with Scott that he, he thought that that was showing me love running into this fire? You know, that doesn't show how much he loved me. If we say Jesus died on the cross for love, and don't mention what he was saving us from. We're not going to rejoice that Jesus accomplished what was completely impossible for you and me. Living a perfect life we have never lived. To die the death we should have died. To make a Bible word propitiation for our sins. Appeasing God's righteous anger. Paying the debt we could not pay. Only Jesus on the cross can give us that great gift. Salvation. Being saved. Whenever you read in verse 9, it's something that is received, not earned. So this morning, you're not a Christian because you've tried really hard to be a good person. 
You're not a Christian because you've come to church your whole life. It is all because of what Christ has done. Nothing to do with what you've done. You will remain a Christian because you recognize that you have a great need for a savior and a great savior for your need. You see in verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. One day you're going to see Jesus. You're going to look him in the eye and you're going to see him and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You're going to see the nail marks in his hands and he's going to say, this was for you. I died so that you may be here with me forever. That's an incredible hope. Let's read verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. Can you imagine these Thessalonian Christians encouraging one another, building each other up? You know, in the face of persecution, I don't have to fear because Jesus has saved me. I'm going to see him. Anything that happens in this life will be worth it because I'm going to see him one day. Tell him one another, I once was in darkness and now I'm in the light. I was blind, but now I see. Me, a Christian, can you believe it? That's crazy, that is insane, that is a miracle. You know, they're a Christian, can you believe it? That is, that is really unbelievable. God can literally save anyone, can't he? You know, we need to look around our church and think, this is a church filled of miracles because God has moved you from darkness to light and one day we will be in heaven together forever. If he's done it for you, he can definitely do it for others. That's what we get encouraged by in this passage. This morning, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you're not prepared for that day, can I urge you to examine your heart? You do not want to be unprepared when the king comes back. What will that day be like whenever you stand before your maker? When he looks over your life, will you say, nothing but the blood of Jesus, in Christ alone I stand. That is your only hope this morning. Perhaps, you know, as I've been speaking, you've felt convicted in your heart and you think, I, I'm in darkness. I recognize that I'm in darkness. You need Jesus. You need his salvation. You need him to, to be your Lord and your Savior. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And perhaps if that's you, you can pray along in your heart. Uh, so let me pray. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner deserving of wrath in need of your mercy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for us so that way we may live with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Pray that you would save me from the wrath that I deserve. Lord, would you cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I believe in the promises of your word. I ask you to be the Lord and the savior of my life. In your name.